1: As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackie might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises said, "'The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so.'" Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit mackeyadvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more.
0: My guest today is Eric Jones. Eric is the co-owner of Adam and Spine Moving Company in Iowa. With an education and background as a nonfiction writer, Eric was gifted a shuttered moving business, starting a 20 plus year odyssey in what it means to own and operate and lead a growing business. He's learned a lot but admits that the learning continues. Welcome Eric.
2: Thank you so much Paul.
0: Great to have you on. I know that you recently went through the Small Giants Leadership Academy so we got to know each other a little bit. You just have a a wonderful story Um, and I'm excited to have our listeners hear that story but talk a little bit about your background in education, in in writing and and uh, the arts, and how you ended up starting a moving company.
2: Yeah, um, well, I got started uh, sort of on the career path uh, with not really knowing at all what I wanted to do. I graduated uh, from a small liberal arts college in Vermont, and, um, and just unlike some of my peers didn't have a career path in mind. I had been pre vet, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was 18 years old. And that path, you know, kind of uh, faltered. And so I left school, not really knowing what to do. And I, um, I decided to go west with uh, a good friend and live in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, to start. And eventually, over that next couple of years of sort of, being in Fairbanks, going down to Denver to be with friends. I gradually um, came to the idea of teaching as a career. didn't have a teaching certificate, so I um, ended up uh, applying to private schools. I had been a soccer player in college and was willing to live in the dorms and coach and teach. And so that's how... I got on a path of um, particularly English. I was an American literature major, so I taught English. I taught writing. I had taken creative writing courses in college. And so pretty quickly, within a couple of years of graduating, I found myself living in a dorm with 17 you know, young people, coaching them, uh, going to mass with them. It was a Catholic boarding school. And so I was kind of fully immersed in uh, the world of education, not just teaching, but living side by side with my students.
0: Wow. What was that like, uh, just being fully immersed in that experience rather than just being a teacher?
2: It was fascinating. I grew up in uh, suburbia, so I was first outside of Hartford, Connecticut in a, a town called Manchester, that's suburban Hartford. And then I moved to Andover, Massachusetts when I was 15. And again, another suburb uh, of of Boston. And so living in a school community of, you know, 600, 700 people, faculty and students included um, was the closest I'll probably ever get to living in a small town where kind of everyone is interested in everyone else's business because there's (laughs) so little to focus on and also where quirks and eccentricities are sort of accepted as part of the backdrop of small community life. Um, So teachers who had big personalities and, um, and even students as well, there was just something very both claustrophobic and sort of, Uh, under the looking glass about it, but also incredibly warm and connected. And you could vacillate between those feelings in a given day of feeling like you needed to get the heck out and then feeling like, oh, I'm a part of this really close-knit kind of intense community.
0: Wow. Interesting kind of, yeah, dichotomy there. Uh, You were growing up. So you move west, you uh, go to college, you have the literacy background, you end up teaching and, uh, living in this Catholic boarding school, had the opportunity to come up to start a business.
2: So, um, I was teaching and actually, um, I think things have changed a lot in education since, you know, this was, this would have back been back in the mid nineties, uh, mid and later nineties. And I think a lot has changed, um, at the time something like 50% of teachers would leave the profession within their first five years. And, um, I lasted a little bit longer than that if you include graduate school teaching. But, um, the primary reason when they listed, they did the research, they list the reasons. I think 10 was pay. Uh, it was number 10, according to some Columbia, you know, teachers college research. Number one was a sense of isolation. And I very much felt that I was working so hard. Like I said, I didn't have a teacher certification um, and uh, the support I got was pretty minimal. I had over my time as a high school teacher over four years, I had one visit that lasted a class period. And I got a handwritten note from the Dean who visited and said, Eric, you're doing a wonderful job. You know, and maybe one or two more sentences And I was, it was like this incredible experience for me to have any feedback. And I kept that note for a long time, but it was the only real feedback I got from any peer, um, in that four years. So I really felt I was working incredibly hard, but with no guidance, no mentorship, no support from an experienced practitioner. And I just got exhausted feeling like I was working really hard, but not getting where I wanted to be. So I just didn't feel like a very good teacher. Mm. um so at that point i i was really enjoying teaching writing i was doing some writing on my own i took some additional writing classes at harvard's open enrollment class with these wonderful teachers who uh, you know uh, there for 500 bucks i think it was you could take classes with these full chaired harvard professors and i took a class with a guy who's now a new yorker columnist named george packer it was just inspired by him. And so I ended up applying to graduate school in writing, thinking, well, you know, I'll try this. Maybe I'll come back to teaching, but I've, I've got to do something else because I feel like I'm working really hard and stagnating and not not really serving the kids in the inspiring way that I would want. I mean, I think I was a fine teacher, but I wanted to be better than fine. Mm. And so I applied to graduate school um, and... I got accepted at a couple of places and ended up coming out to Iowa because they were able to offer me a graduate teaching fellowship, which, you know, could pay for, um, you know, pay to support me while I came to school for writing.
0: Yeah. And so what happens after graduation?
2: So, uh, <laughs> so I'm faced with a decision. I I became friends with my landlord who... Uh, basically boarded people like he opened up his house to college students as a college town big university town and um I had become really close friends with him and um I applied to do some nonprofit work and and turned down a job in Boston um I I was sort of uh, again at a crossroads and um didn't want to go back to teaching. I kind of had confirmed, like, I don't, I don't want to go back to high school teaching. Um, and he said, I, you know, I, he was a sort of jack of all trades, a software programmer, artist, um, designer. And he said, well, I, I used to have this, um, rental truck loading and unloading company. And I stopped doing it like two years ago, pulled the ad and I still get calls for it. There's, there's a need for it. So, If you wanted to, I bet you you could start that right back up and have work pretty quickly. Um, And so I did that. I took his business card, which he gave me. I called up the number that he had of the woman who had the phone book ad, the the salesperson at the phone book when those were still a thing. And I took ad and I bought my first cell phone. This is in two thousand two, and I needed a job. And there are two jobs in this town that are anyone can get at any time, basically still to this day. Um, and they are, you can be a nursing assistant at our giant, you know, three quarter mile long teaching hospital um, in the psychiatric ward or in the burn unit. I think it's still true to this day that, that those two places are just really tough places to work. And so I went and they said, oh, you know, you're not a very fast typer. You can't do these other things. But there are these two possible jobs, and you know you get trained and then they hire you. and so I chose the burn unit, um, and I worked there half time, maybe some more hours, but that got me health insurance, a regular salary, and I worked as what's called a tub tech in the burn unit, um, helping nurses give uh, burn patients daily baths. Mm. Um, and it was very intense work. I'd never worked in healthcare before. I was very green, um, that room temperature is 100, over 100 degrees because patients need to be kept warm because your skin is what keeps you warm and they have, they're lacking a lot of their skin. It's a place that they dread. There's, you know, it's just intense pain, screaming. Um, And I would come home from those days just feeling exhausted and, um, but I, I would also, during my breaks, I would return calls of people, you know, wanting to move and I'd book moves and then they were really flexible and allowed me to stack my days so that I could do moves out of state. um, So I could work there seven days in a row and then do a five day move out to Colorado. Um, But at some, you know, at at two years out, the business was big enough to support me and I could quit and, um, and my life became a lot better after that.
0: (laughs) Uh, so no more working in the burn unit. Now you can kind of support yourself. So uh tell tell me how the business has progressed. Where are you in terms of size, number of employees, and and what's really unique and special about the business today?
2: Yeah. So the the big turning point was uh I hired a guy from Iowa named Bill Hogue, a farm kid, and we're so lucky uh in Iowa to have, um, you know, a lot of rural communities where young people work side by side with their families as they grow up. And so our, our work is, uh, both very high touch customer service, but also pretty intensely mechanical, um, not just with the trucks and equipment, but with disassembling things in the house. And there's just a lot of sort of intuitive, um, kind of, Um, mechanical know-how required to do the job really well. And so he was just such a great fit. He was this farm kid um, who basically loved that aspect of the business. He's really mechanically inclined, really um, sort of structure and process. and, uh, And so I quickly became partners with him. I think maybe a year, you know, six months, a year out of his graduation. So I, he worked for me for about a year and a half, two years, graduated. And then we kind of looked at each other and there wasn't much to it. We hadn't yet bought our first truck and we became partners, bought our first truck. And, um, you know, at that point it was still highly seasonal, not much work in the winter, but enough in the summer and, and maybe six or seven full-time employees in 2006. Um, and maybe over the next 10 years, I would say we were the anti-entrepreneurs. Uh, we basically did the work. We booked the sales while on the jobs. We did all the claims, um, basically ran the business from the seat of a moving truck, the both of us, and um, never went out to shake realtors' hands, never talked to people about our services, Um so uh it was a very slow growth strategy if it were a strategy but it wasn't it was sort of anti strategy just continuing to do the work and continuing to grow kind of organically and by word of mouth for a long time um so uh you know really things um develop you know it, so it was probably a good 10 years of that where either of us might spend 80, 90 days on the road doing interstate moves, we would kind of trade off with that so that one of us would be able to run the operation, one of us would go over the road. Um, And it was just a very um, sort of bootstrap, long, hard work without really much thought of building an organization or building a company, just kind of owning our jobs and hiring the people that we need to as the business grew.
0: Well, but somehow you figured it out along the way. And uh, I know you you focus a lot on being eco-friendly, uh, which is not something you'd probably think about traditionally with moving companies, but there's some very practical ways that you guys do that. And it's really fascinating. Share a couple of those tactics you use to accomplish that.
2: Yeah. I- we're lucky in that Iowa is a big ag state, so that we've gotten a lot of agricultural byproducts. And um we also have, like I said, this sort of tinkering, um, kind of mechanically inclined rural kind of economy um that has been a green in some ways for a long, long time. Um, but uh we were able to connect with a local guy who um, was making his own biodiesel out of his barn. And he concocted his own, what he called a sucker truck, uh, which was this basically giant, uh, looked like an oil truck, uh, that instead of delivering oil, he would suck it up um, from, oh, there's a local casino, like I said, the giant hospitals. And he would go and collect their waste veggie oil and then make us biodiesel. And so we would we would kind of help support, you know, by the raw ingredients, the methanol and things. At the beginning of the season, it was kind of a cooperative and other people, you know, bought the fuel too. But he would make thousands of gallons of biodiesel for us and um and high quality too, so we could use it in really high concentrations. And so taking a waste product and fueling our trucks and you know, reducing climate impact, but also reducing the Harmful emissions that cause nasty things like asthma and kids and things like that. So I think that's that was you know one of our earliest initiatives and the one that has stuck the longest. We now actually buy biodiesel from still from Iowa, um, but one of the largest facilities for biodiesel in the world is um, outside of Des Moines and just recently purchased purchased by Chevron, and they now deliver biodiesel to us. Um, the pandemic, the guy who brewed his own biodiesel. He stopped doing it during the pandemic, just through challenges. Mm. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. And then when we went to build our warehouse, I think, I think you know, builders are catching on, um, you know, HVAC contractors, the things they're catching on, but there's still, I think, a resistance to new technology. And so we really needed to work pretty hard and reach out to, cons- to some consultants to um do geothermal so we're able to do geothermal for the warehouse so a ground source heat pump um, there's no gas um you know coming into the warehouse at all so we heat and cool um the warehouse through in-floor radiant heat and then we have you know air exchangers that all run off the geothermal system and then we've got about a hundred panel solar array on the rooftop so that um you know most of our electricity Needs to heat and cool the building come from the sun. Um, so I think those are the two biggest things that I'm most proud about.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, at this point, uh, just to give folks a sense of size, how many employees do you have, I don't know if you share high-level revenue, yeah. anything.
2: Yeah. We um we have about 50, a little less than 50 full-time employees. And then, like I said, moving is highly seasonal. We, we scale up to between 90 and 100 employees in the sort of 16-week moving season that runs between May and the end of August. Mm. Um, and a lot of that growth, well, at least a decent part of that growth came three and a half years ago when um, two long-term employees, uh, Cliff and Emily Wallace, who were both University of Iowa students, so came to Iowa City to go to school, but they're both from Des Moines, which is two hours away in the center of the state. And really, you know, there's, there's, you know, kind of, it is the center. Uh, unlike some other state capitals, it really is the most populous and sort of the center of economic activity and ag, you know, and insurance uh, in in the state. And they wanted to move back and they really wanted to continue to work with us. And it wasn't really clear how. And so over a period of about a year, through talks with them and figuring things out, we decided that including them in ownership and having them, you know, start a new branch made the most sense. And they started just at the be- beginning of the pandemic. And the pandemic has been was a real boon for movers because so much. Um, not only low interest rates but just the focus on okay we're working from home we need more space um you know we're we're expanding or we're, we're changing to a different house so we saw just record growth like sort of 40 50% year over year growth for several years and they were a large part of that um that growth or you know 80% of that growth was that expansion into Des Moines but it came with its own set of challenges growth comes with its own set of challenges. And I think it's really, you know, that if I were to think about a turning point where we really sort of had to scratch our heads and start thinking about, well, wait a minute, like we're, you know, we're responsible for this, um, this thing that we've built and it's kind of getting away from us, like the things that we value, um, you know, treating people really well, paying them well, making sure that they have a good quality of life with, you know, high growth, those things, um, kind of faltered. And, and so at that point, that, that sort of pain point is when we really started to look, look towards others who were inspiring and had, had kind of grown without sacrificing their values.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And both you and Cliff participated in the Leadership Academy, recently graduated. Uh, What what were one or two of the key learnings that came out of that for you? I know building process uh, has been important to you. You've made a lot of strides in that area, too. But I think you've also focused on ways to take those inherent values that you and Cliff and your partners have uh, and embedding them into the organization as you grow. Uh, what what kind of came through mostly when you started to be exposed to some of these learnings and other peers in other industries that you went through the program with?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question you all asked at the end, which I think is so smart. Um, I would say, you know, I I don't know how much value it is for others because I went from a person who had a bristling kind of innate reaction against, um, the things that I kind of, uh, instinctively react to as, um, anti-authentic or as kind of BSE businessy stuff. I think coming from, uh, literature and the arts, um, you know, that those sort of values of transparency and honesty and, and sort of truth that runs against the grain and might be even countercultural um, led me to think that things like mission, values um uh, even you know five-year visions and all that kind of organizational structure that kind of what I now know helps people have clarity, helps people know the direction that they're going so that they can feel a part of a team, um, give them benchmarks, uh, to sort of measure their progress. It, it, uh, I had sort of a chip on my shoulder about it. So I've, I've gone from feeling mostly anxiety about authenticity around those kinds of things to, um, to seeing that, uh, that I sort of need to get over myself, that I need to get over the chip on my shoulder about those things. And I, I, you know, that process has been happening naturally as I see these other really authentic, transparent, genuine leaders in other companies, um, wrestling with issues, but also embracing who they are, what matters to them. Um, and, you know, and really succeeding because of it and helping, mostly helping, uh, the people who are, who are with them, who have given them the gift of their time and attention and skills and talents, uh, that they're, they're sort of, doing their best by, by them, by clearly articulating what they're about and where they want to go.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of gave yourself permission to be who you are and realize that that, that sensibility that you had, even though you were maybe cynical early on about the authenticity of that could really work to your advantage and um, could contribute to the impact you could make on the people that you work with. And you guys have come a long way. Uh, I want to take you back Eric, a little bit to even before the this whole thing started, before you were uh, in school, even at some of these early jobs, you had some really interesting early jobs that I feel like in some way did contribute to the sensibility that you have today.
2: Yeah, you know, um, I was thinking about, uh, you know, in preparing for this uh, in trying to s- sort of figure out what my journey has been i've 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 thought quite a bit about um the sort of what, if any uh, consistent thread there is. And I think one consistent thread is that I've always been fascinated with the way in which work um, sets up a really interesting, chewy ethical and moral challenges. Um, and I often learn the most from the way in which I fail or the way in which I make mistakes, you know, in the face of those challenges. Um, so as a child, um, you know, um, I, I had a paper route and, um, you know, I would drop a paper in the puddle and then I didn't have enough papers to deliver. And so then I'm faced with, okay, who am I not going to give a paper to? Should I tell them? Well, these people um, seem, the paper seem to pile up there. So I'm not going to give them one today, but not telling them, you know, it's sort of, um, or what to do when someone doesn't pay you. Okay. This, this customer hasn't paid me for 13 weeks now. And I, I, this was a time when you had to go and collect house by house And I'd ring on the doorbell a couple of times a week and they'd never answer it. Sometimes they'd think they were home. And so then um, I came up with this idea to call them 10, 12, 15 times on Saturday morning (laughs) and no answer. So I called them the next day on Sunday, 10, 12, 15 times. And finally, someone sleepily answers. This is like eight in the morning. And I hang up and I get on my bike and I ride over and I knock on the door No one answers. I keep knocking on the door, and finally they come down and they write me a check for the fifteen weeks that they owe me. Oh my! Um, And I never, you know, I I don't know. Like, was that the right thing to do? I don't know if that was the right thing to do. But um, even as a kid, faced with these dilemmas that don't have any clear answers, it's just sort of uh, you're just figuring it out. Um, And I think that feeling has been consistent, uh, both consistently challenging and consistently energizing, um, to this day. And I think it's what I, if I, if I feel, you know, if I express passion to people, it's about that chewy kind of knotty kind of challenge of, um, finding your way in a pretty rich kind of field of, um, ethical and moral challenges in serving people. If that makes any sense,
0: it does. And can you think of maybe one more current example where that's presented itself in your business? Oh
2: yeah, I mean, I can. Th- uh, so I can think of dozens, uh, but uh, I'll give you an example that is particularly awkward, and I don't think we figured this one out, but. Um, we work with all kinds of people in all kinds of phases of their lives. Some of them really, really challenging. Um, we moved these, this wonderful couple this, um, summer who were just so appreciative and so generous and grateful for the care and service that the guys were providing. And, um, it, it just stunned me to learn only after the fact that they were moving, um, for kind of last-ditch cancer care, you know, uh, on the East Coast. And that's the only reason they were leaving, for the wife. And so here she was, um, you know, fighting for her life. They were leaving the place that they loved so that she could, you know, try some experimental treatment. And they were just giving uh, such incredible gratitude and kindness to us and to our staff. Um, But other, other people are are you know in really different places and we end up coming to the end of our relationship with them and thinking, well, that really, we did everything we could, but that really didn't go well for us and it didn't go well for them. And I don't think it would make sense for us to work with them again. And so we put in place this um, button that's basically like, okay, we we don't think it's a good idea to work with them again. But we haven't quite worked out what salespeople should say when those people call back. Um, and so uh, some some people do call back and then the salesperson's in an awkward position. They can either deflect and lie or they can come out and say, you know, well, we didn't think the experience was good for our employees. They you know, they felt abused. One of them cried from the way that you treated them. Uh, you know, or, or you know, we just haven't um, been able to find a delicate script for that. Or we haven't, maybe we just haven't spent the time to figure it out. Um, and so basically, we've broken up with customers without telling them, thinking that oftentimes people don't move for another 10, 15, 20 years and, and, it, and it won't be a problem. Um, uh, but obviously, it it can be and it is.
0: Yeah, I think the dilemma there too is, do they deserve to know, um, yeah. as opposed to kind of ignoring them and hoping they don't call back. Right. And right. No, and there's something to that as well. Yeah, um, you've taken these lessons all along the way, and 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 today, Eric, when you and Cliff thinking about think about the business, your current growth trajectory that you're on, what do you think your your biggest current challenges?
2: Oh, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, through the Small Giants Leadership Academy, through the connections that we've made and the way in which, um, you know, we just know where our opportunities for growth are is through relationships, through models, um, through resources that we've connected to, uh, in the Small Giants community. The, um... You know, I think the challenge for us is can we continue um, to grow ourselves uh, in such a way that our people who are, uh, we've just got great longevity and and people stick around and people graduate college and say, yeah, my parents want me to get a quote real job, but I believe in what you're doing and I see what's happening and I want to stay and I want to do something interesting. It's, it's, um, it's having us grow fast enough, uh, as, you know, sort of leaders and stewards, um, of this group of people and these resources. Can we grow at a pace that also, um, allows others to grow at a pace that they want to, uh, if that makes sense.
0: For sure. Uh, I think that's great. Clearly, you guys are committed to it and you're spending the time and you're investing in yourselves, which is really important um, to also position yourself to give and have that impact on others, but also to set an example for them around uh, what it takes to learn and what it takes to lead. Um, you guys are great examples of that. Uh, so if in thinking about your leadership journey, Eric, what is one area of leadership in particular that you think you still really need to improve on?
2: Oh man. Um, I, I need to improve in so many areas. Um, I would say the biggest is what I've come to understand, you know, through small giants and through resources that folks have pointed us to is kind of the, um, oh, the bones, uh, you know, sort of building the, 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 the sort of infrastructure of a company, um, meeting cadence, who meets why? You know, we we've uh, gravitated towards open book management, and great game of business, as our you know answer to that. But that's a long journey, and so um, it doesn't come naturally to me. You know, almost like the difference between I, I can I can go to a party and I can have great one on one conversations with almost anyone there. I I just I'm naturally good at you know sort of listening and. Uh, making, you know, just just bringing out um, kind of interesting facets of experience uh, in myself and other people. But um, the person who hosts the party, who planned it, who decided what the decor was, decided what the meal was, when it would be served, who sits next to whom, that set of skills is so impressive to me and so foreign to me. And I need to have some of that or I need to ask someone, you know to bring those skills to bear um, for us.
0: Well, being self-aware is really important and you're doing that and building a team that can bring those skills as well. So some of it, yeah, yes, you need to know some of it really is about getting great people around you and building that process and structure that you're talking about. And I think, I think you're doing that. As you look back, as we kind of finish up here, Eric, and at your career so far, there's a, a long, Uh, road ahead that's going to be bringing you even more ability from uh, being a leader to the impact you're having on other people. But what would you tell a young person? What kind of advice would you give them about what's most important as they begin an entrepreneurial or leadership journey?
2: Uh, It's a great question. And I would tell them to be suspicious of advice. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think there was a piece of advice that I heard an experienced writer give a young writer that I think serves in this case too. And the advice was uh, become someone. And, um, and I would probably even add an addition to that, which is become yourself. Uh, And by that, I mean um, recognize that the more, fully you, um, tap into those things that were just gifted to you and the things that were gifted and that you've kind of run with that those, um, that, that really fully embracing those things is not just the key to your own fulfillment and success, but the fulfillment and success of those around you.
0: Man, I love that. Um, What a great lesson to share with everyone to ultimately um, find yourself, be yourself. Uh, That's something we could all learn from. Uh, Eric, I want to end with these five quick hit questions, kind of like the association game. Just name the first thing that comes to your mind. How about the name of a leader you look up to?
2: Uh, Most recently, it's Liz Cheney.
0: Yeah, (laughs) great one. Yeah, Uh, How about a great book that influenced your leadership style?
2: This is a tough one for me, but um, a book that I read quite a while ago is called Being the Boss. And the essential thesis of it is that doing this job is a lifelong journey and doing it well is a worthy, lifelong goal. And that um, those who continue on the path get better and better at it. Um, and that if you give up or falter or think that it's not a worthy goal to continue growing as a boss, um, then you and those around you will suffer.
0: Well, I think you've leaned into the messages from that book beautifully. Uh, how about an all-time favorite movie?
2: I think that I'm a I'm a documentary fan. And I think that the 7-Up series that follows some British um, school kids from the time they're seven or so into their 60s and early 70s now. Um, I think it's one of the most fascinating um, stories I've ever seen unfold.
0: Oh, wow. What a great recommendation. Is there a favorite TV series you like to binge watch?
2: I was super into binge watching Game of Thrones, um, especially when it was in its really good phase, not near the end, just to watch watch um, the different characters develop and evolve and transform.
0: Yeah, that was a great show. And I kind of faded out at the end myself. I don't know if I ever watched the end of it, but it was really going there for a while. And lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know?
2: Um, I think many people don't know uh, about my writing background and, um, and probably don't know that My um, true love uh, was African-American literature. And so I ended up writing a thesis uh, in college on African-American women's literature, in particular, uh, Toni Morrison's novels, um, including Beloved, uh, is just, I think, one of the greatest books of all time.
0: Hmm. Wow. What an incredible background. And uh, gosh, I got lots of notes here, Eric. I want to share reflections and what I learned from you today um, and you're definitely what I call a reluctant entrepreneur, but you have realized who you are and what you're about and what the opportunity is, not only for you, but those that you serve, and they're all benefiting from that. But how you started off as a, a teacher, you moved west, you you uh, worked in the Catholic boarding school living, and, and finally, though uh, probably enjoying some of the experience, feeling that sense of isolation, uh, very uh, impactful that you just out of all those four years got one note from the dean with a few sentences telling you you're doing a good job but getting no other feedback and that that's really hard uh, and made you feel actually that you weren't even a great teacher although i'm sure your students would would have told you otherwise took some classes went to grad school got got that scholarship and uh, your landlord there where you were living Uh, talked about this moving business that he had that he just kind of let go. But there was still an ad in the yellow pages that was running and he was getting calls. And so just maybe you take that over and and you took an opportunity. You took out that ad, you bought a cell phone, um, but you still needed a job. So you took that tough job in the burn unit, did that. And uh, after a couple of years, you were able to be self-sufficient in this business. And now you were actually a business person. Uh, you you found Bill as a farm kid. You guys became partners. And um and I think you were a bit cynical of, of what it meant to be an entrepreneur, um, didn't probably understand even the word. You ran the business from the the front seat of a truck, um, didn't know what it meant to build process, to build relationships, or really an organization. And yet you guys were doing something really special by being eco-friendly. Uh, in multiple ways. And that's how uh, you differentiated yourselves. Uh, again, you took on new relationships with Cliff and his wife as owners, added another city, and now the business is really starting to grow. Um, it's continued to grow through COVID. Uh, and, uh, and you realize, man, we just need to mature as business leaders and as business owners and start to build some of these processes and structure that we just didn't have before. Um, and probably felt this tug of your own values to say, could they be compatible? Could you do both uh, at the same time? Um, and as I said, it was a pleasure having you and Clef in the Leadership Academy, um, even though you were maybe feeling like mission, vision type of things and companies weren't really authentic. Now you really see the value and that they can be learned that they can be used to your benefit and the, and the people in the company. And you learned that it was ultimately okay to be who you are. And you really learned that from your peers in the academy, which, which was wonderful. Um, those early jobs, the thread about you know, how fascinated you were in how work exposes these dilemmas. Uh, life exposes these dilemmas right, around ethical or moral choices that we have to make. You took those experiences and leveraged those. And you even have those today in terms of how you deal with clients that maybe you had bad experiences with and and deciding what's the best way to tell them or not tell them that we no longer want to work with them again. But by making that choice, you're also protecting the business and protecting the people that you're with. Um, I love the current challenge that you have is to say you're committed to growing yourself so that you can grow other leaders that can then impact and grow Uh, this business and that's going to be done through some of this infrastructure process meeting some of the basics of, of run what it takes to run a business and I think you've accepted that those and the ability to be authentic can live hand in hand and support each other and lastly I love the advice you have for young people to first be suspicious of advice which is really good and and lastly that ultimately the the opportunity is that you can become someone or really become yourself and i love that because we don't all figure that out sometimes ever and if we have the opportunity in terms of our own lives the relationships we build and as entrepreneurs leaders where we have a little bit of control where we have opportunity boy if you can get there to understand who you are and live that authentically, you're in a better place. So I think you're on that journey, Eric, and um, I'm really proud of the work that you've done. And I know there's a lot of runway left, and we look forward to continuing to hear your story. So thank you so much for for being on the podcast.
2: Oh, Paul, thank you so much um, for inviting me and then for giving me that incredible synopsis of uh, our conversation. It's just really a gift. Uh, You're close listening and sharing is is just a great gift.
0: Well, thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on social media. Until next time.